0: For those of you who are regulars here, uh, we are taking a break from our series in Hebrews. Uh, uh, Many of you will have been uh, really quite excited as we've been working our way through uh, the letter to the Hebrews, and especially maybe as we've been going through chapter 11 and, and just reminding ourselves of the stories of great characters from the Old Testament, great men and women of faith. People who heard from God and actually stepped out as a result of that. Actually, not dissimilar to what some of you have done this afternoon. You know, you heard from God and you stepped out. These mighty characters in Hebrews 11 did uh, just that thing. And so we're not done with, uh, with uh, Hebrews as yet. We've still got chapter 11 to finish and, and chapters 12 and 13 to uh, come on to later. But we're going to take a break. Uh, now in the run-up to Easter uh, and uh, and look at a mini-series. Um, and Easter is a very special time for us as a church, isn't it? Uh, and for the church worldwide. You know, next to, or probably alongside the birth of Jesus, you know, Easter Sunday is the most important day in the Christian calendar. It is, of course, the day when we celebrate the fact that Jesus who had been crucified, three days later rose from the dead, triumphant over sin and death. And we're going to walk through a series over the next few weeks entitled Encountering Jesus. And as we do so, we're going to focus on the response of different uh, people uh, to uh, Jesus during the course of Holy Week, the week that led up to his crucifixion and to Uh, his resurrection. Over the past few years, there have been many important uh, events in our calendar in the UK, in our nation's history. It it might have been one of the royal weddings that have taken place over recent years. It might have been the funeral of uh, uh, the late uh, Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, other occasions like that. And these are occasions that cause a great coming together of people. You know people gather. Uh, sometimes they gather up in, in London, because that tends to be the center of events, or maybe Windsor. Or actually people gather in their streets as well, and uh, come together as a crowd uh, to remember that occasion. And that's not just in this country. actually, those events spread. Throughout the world, and you see you know, people in other nations, other countries looking in on those events. I wonder I mean, how many of you here have actually taken time to go up to London for one of those special occasions, one of those special events? Anyone? Yes, Nodine, which is you got for? When the Queen Mother died. Okay, yep, yep. you couldn't get in no, okay but not many of us it seems have been up and actually I I would say I've not been up either uh, to to London or to Windsor for those occasions and actually for me it's because I think watching it on television whilst you don't get the same atmosphere uh, you do get to see the entirety uh, of the event whereas if you're there in person uh, maybe you just see a small part of it and then catch up so no lean a bit like uh, Pete Cornford was saying last week, you know some people want to be able to say I was there I was there when this happened I was there when so and so got married or I was just across the street from Westminster Abbey when this happened they want to be able to identify with that event you know, it's at times like these that broadcasters seem to come into their own. They want to talk to just about anybody who has anything to do uh, with the event. You know, they'll talk to other members of the royal family if they can get access to them. They'll talk to members of parliament. Uh, they'll talk to maybe spiritual leaders across the country. And they'll actually talk to people in the crowd. They'll ask them what their reaction is to what's going on. What was their reaction to this person who's getting married or this person who's died? What do they remember about them? What was special about them? What do they think is going to change as a result of what's happened? What are their feelings at this important time? And in a sense, that's what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks. We're going to be looking at the reaction of different people in the story around Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Clearly, we don't have access to the characters themselves. We can't go up to them with the microphone and stick the microphone in their face and say, you know, what do you think? But we have the gospel accounts. And so we can look at the gospel accounts and see how people reacted and see how that applies to us today. And today we're going to look at the crowds and see how the crowds reacted to all that was going on during the course of this week. We could look at any one of the gospel accounts to to see this, but we're going to start in Luke's gospel. We're going to reference other passages of scripture as we go through, but we're going to start in Luke's gospel. We're going to start in chapter 19, and we're going to read from verse 38. If you've got your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to... Open them up. The words will appear on the screen, but, but do take the opportunity just to open your Bibles while I take the opportunity just to grab my drink. Okay, so Luke chapter 19, I'm reading from verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Why are you untying the colt?" And they said, "The Lord has need of it." And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And he rode along. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. When he came to the place near the place. Where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet the stones will cry out the first section of that passage uh, i read was purely to set our uh, our key verses if you like in context we won't dig into those particular verses we're going to focus more on verses 37 to 40 but briefly br- jesus had set his face throughout his ministry towards jerusalem that's why he came Way back in, June, in Luke chapter 9 and verse 30, 53, when he was rejected by a Samaritan village, we read that his face was set toward Jerusalem. In chapter 13, we read he went through towns and villages teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Jesus was purposeful. He knew why he had come to earth. He knew there was a plan and that this plan required him to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. And Jesus, obedient to his father's will, was therefore making his way up to Jerusalem. He was nearing Bethphage and Bethany when he sent two disciples on to bring him a colt, saying simply to the owner, the Lord has need of it. And that colt was released to them. And in spite of the fact that it had never been trained, it had never been ridden before, it yielded to having cloaks laid on it and Jesus sitting on it for this final leg of his journey into Jerusalem. And I want us to look now at the reaction of the crowds who witnessed these events and others during that week. And I'll do so under three headings. Firstly, Hope Raised. So it was on what we now call Palm Sunday that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem riding on a colt where he was welcomed by cheering crowds. Verse 37 talks of a multitude of his disciples, far more than the 12. This was a group of people, pilgrims, who had traveled with Jesus up from Galilee. They joined him for this journey to Jerusalem. So many, that in verse 39, they're referred to as a crowd. And there was a fervor about this crowd, a sense of occasion, just as might have been the case if you'd gone up to London for one of those events we talked about earlier. They were excited, they were expectant. They'd witnessed the mighty works that Jesus had done as they traveled through villages and towns. You know, last Sunday, Pete spoke to us about two of those miracles of healing that Jesus did, a healing healing ministry and also a raising from the dead. So Pete spoke to us about the woman healed from a hemorrhage that she'd suffered from for 12 years. And he spoke to us also about Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. They were just two of the miraculous deeds that Jesus performed during his time on earth. Miraculous deeds that you know, went right across the spectrum from turning water into wine, feeding 5,000 people from just five loaves and two fish, casting out demons, healing people from various diseases, raising others from the dead. Is it any wonder that the crowds were excited as they recalled all of this? But they were expectant as well. Their excitement wasn't just looking in the rearview mirror at what Jesus had done in the past. Their excitement was about what they believed he would now do as he entered Jerusalem. His arrival, often called the triumphal entry, fulfilled the prof- prophecy of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, where in his prophecy, chapter 9 and verse 9, He talks about the Messiah's appearance in Jerusalem. And he writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus fulfilled all that Zechariah had prophesied. He didn't come on some huge charger as would have been fitting for a conquering king or a military leader. Instead, he came on a cult. He came in humility. Despite this, the people believed that he was coming as a conquering hero. Remember, this was a people who had suffered under the tyranny of harsh Roman authorities for years. So their interpretation of what was happening was that Jesus was some sort of political savior, someone who would bring them freedom from this oppression that they were suffering from, and who would enable the Jewish nation to rise to prominence. What they'd seen Jesus do throughout his ministry and what they believed he was about to do caused them to erupt in joy and to praise God. I guess any of us facing a bleak situation such as theirs might grasp a solution that presents itself. Something or someone who can save us from the difficulty that we're going through. Just as the crowds in this story, we might see Jesus As one who could save us from these circumstances that we're going from uh, through, someone who can rescue us from our current situation, understand uh, uh, on the mistaken understanding that you know if we believe in him, everything will be okay. Whether that's health-related, in terms of our housing or our career, our relationships or our finances. And we greet the prospect of that rosy future with joy and excitement and praise God for what he has done or what we're expecting him to do. We're expecting him to do our will rather than for who he is and what he's committed to doing. In other words, his will. You know, we read earlier, had read to us earlier uh, from that prophecy of Joel about the Spirit being poured out on all flesh. And Chris read to us from Psalm 145, uh, where he read, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. You know, we have every reason To praise our God. You know, the praise that these people on that first Palm Sunday were crying out, not understanding quite why they were doing it. We have the understanding and the very reason to do it because we know the complete story of Easter and we know that His Spirit has been poured out on us as His people. We have every reason to cry out in praise and worship of our God. And in response to what the Pharisees, the criticism of the Pharisees, you know, Jesus said, you know, if, the sto- if, if you don't praise me, the very stones will cry out in praise to me. You know, if we don't praise him, creation, the whole of creation, will praise God. You know, we have every reason, brothers and sisters, to praise him. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about hopes dashed. Most of you here will know how the story unfolds over the course of Holy Week, how the chief priests and scribes became increasingly embarrassed by Jesus' ministry and challenged by, by Jesus, and even more determined that he should be put to death, how he alienated the scribes and the teachers of the law for their hypocrisy, how he tells of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, how Jesus is betrayed by Judas, how he is arrested and mocked and scorned and put on trial. This is not what the crowds on that first Palm Sunday had imagined. The one they would believed would be a conquering king, their rescuer from oppression from the Roman authorities, now appeared weak. He refused to defend himself. He didn't fight back. Just as Isaiah had prophesied some 700 years before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Can you imagine how deflated they must have felt? How their hopes seemed to be dashed. Just five days after that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, with a crowd filled with excitement and expectation, Jesus had been tried by both Herod and Pilate, both of whom were agreed that none of the charges brought against Jesus, justify the death sentence. Pilate, needing to find a way out, decides to put the decision to the crowd in the belief that they will want Jesus released. And Mark records it in chapter 15 of his Gospel. He writes, Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison... Who had committed murder for the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate said again to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, having scourged Jesus he delivered him to be crucified. The groundswell of public sentiment that had been so vociferous in their praise just five days earlier was now equally vociferous in demanding that Jesus be crucified, admittedly stoked up by the chief priests. In that short space of time, the people had come to realize that Jesus was not the one who was going to lead a coup against the Roman authorities. Despite the displays of his power and authority in his ministry, he was failing to use them to bring about the change that they had so hoped for. They were disappointed. They were disillusioned. Their hopes had been dashed. I guess we can all think of people, either in our own lives or maybe national or international figures, and I don't want to lead you in your thinking, uh, who promised much and failed to deliver. You know, we can all think of examples, I guess. They may have been held in high esteem initially. We may have thought their characters were great. We may have thought their promises were marvelous. They would lead to such change. But over time, we become disappointed. Either because of their failure to do what they said they were going to do, or maybe because of failings in their character. They weren't who they seemed to be. Well, that's not the case with Jesus. The turning of the crowd was not due to any failure on Jesus' part. No, the people had clearly misunderstood his message. Time and again, both directly and through parables, Jesus explained both to his inner circle of disciples and to those following him the reason he'd come. He'd been clear that the only way things were going to change for the better was through them recognizing their need of God and returning to his ways. It was never going to come through political reform, never going to come through armed rebellion or any form of uprising. We look recently at the way Abraham was commended for his faith when he was obedient to God in moving from Ur to a land that I will show you, the promised land, that Abraham never possessed, would only have been the partial fulfillment of that promise. The promise was pointing forward, pointing towards a heavenly kingdom. And it was to that kingdom that these crowds should have been focused. Not on the short term, not on the here and now, not on reform that they thought Jesus would bring. And that's true for us today. I believe that we can be so caught up with our short-term comfort or satisfaction that we lose sight of the bigger picture, of the promise that we have in Christ. There are those who believe that a decision to follow Christ will lead to a life where things are plain sailing, where material possessions, where health, where prosperity are theirs of right and will flow from that initial decision to follow Jesus. When Jesus told the parable of the sower, he talked about those who, when they first hear the message of the gospel, are excited but then fall away because they're tempted and they have no root. He also talks about those for whom the concerns and the riches and pleasures of this world choke the growth and fruit never matures. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a verse that I have often heard taken out of context and misapplied. I may have been guilty of it myself at times. You know, we can so often take it to apply to the here and now and that it's for our benefit. Of course, of course if we place our trust in God, he wants the very best for us. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's always going to give us what we want, or that life is going to be easy for us. He sees the big picture. His plans for us will come to fruition in order that he is glorified in our lives. I guess we all struggle at times when things that happen in our lives are clearly not good and not what we would have wanted. You know, I've been through times in the past of being made redundant. And you think, wow. Hang on, if I apply that verse from Romans to that situation, well, how is that working for good? But I had to lift my eyes from that current situation to realize that actually God's purposes were for eternity, not for the here and now. And did God work for his purpose is for good through that situation, yes he did. Did he teach me stuff through that situation? Yes, he did. So when we're going through situations like redundancy, or we suffer an accident, or ill health, or someone we trusted lets us down, we need to remember that God sees the bigger picture. Thirdly, I want us to look at hope restored. It would be so sad, wouldn't it, if we were to stop that hope being dashed. What a dreadful place to stop that would be. But fortunately, we can see in God's word that hope is restored. We know that Jesus was indeed crucified, taking on himself the punishment for our sin so that we might be set free, that we might be made acceptable to God. There was no other way. There was no other way in which we could be made worthy to be citizens of heaven and to appear before our maker other than through the shedding of blood. And Jesus made that sacrifice for us. But that's not the end of the story. There's another crowd I want us to consider. Three days after his crucifixion, Jesus rose from the grave, defeating sin and death. Hallelujah. And in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 6, Paul tells us that in the days following his resurrection, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, to the 12 disciples, and then to more than 500 at the same time. That sounds like a crowd to me. Can you imagine what it must have been like to be in this crowd of 500 to have been through the whole grieving process of seeing someone you've followed so closely being wrongly accused being flogged and beaten rejected by men and then suffering the most cruel of deaths on a cross to have come to terms with the fact That you thought that Jesus was going to save the Jewish nation, only to have that ripped away from you as Jesus went to the cross. And then to see the risen Jesus and to realize what he'd been teaching all along, and that you'd initially missed the point that there was an eternal perspective to his ministry. It must have been truly amazing for them, as it should be for us as we prepare for this coming Easter. Paul continues to explain what Jesus' resurrection meant for them and what it means for us today. He writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, Then, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus was in the business of establishing his rule and reign, just not in the earthly form of overthrowing the Romans. The enemy he came to defeat in sin and Satan is far more powerful than those Roman authorities were. In his work on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus has made made it possible For each and every one who believes in him to be raised to new life in him. Those who've died before he comes again and those who are still alive on earth. In his resurrection, he is the first fruit. But all who belong in Christ will follow. What a glorious message. Is it a glorious message? Oh, well, I think it is. So as we look at these three very different reactions to the events of that first Holy Week, I wonder where you're at. You see, while we've entitled this The Crowds, in reality, each person in each of these three crowds had a decision to make. Yes, there would have been a certain kind of peer, peer group pressure to conform, and emotions might have taken over as we see very often in riots and demonstrations or some sporting events. But each person had to make their own decision, their own choice, as to whether to participate with the crowd or to stand out from the crowd. And it's the same for us. So I wonder, are you impressed by the miracles Jesus performed and the power he displayed? But under the impression that following him is all about your life on earth being better, more comfortable, more secure, fewer things to worry about? Are you believing him for what you think that he can do for you in the here and now? Or are you in that second camp? Are you maybe you've taken the initial step of faith to put your trust in him? only for the cares of this world to leave you disappointed or disillusioned. You thought it was going to be an easy road. You started well, but the seed that was sown and started to grow has been choked and isn't bearing any fruit because of your continually looking over your shoulder at the things that you've left behind, the things you were chasing after before, the riches of this world or living to please yourself, things that of themselves aren't necessarily wrong or bad, but which can take away your focus from the far greater and the eternal riches that God has in store for us. Or have you encountered the risen Jesus? Jesus? Have you understood fully why he came and what it means for you? Like Paul and the others he appeared to, are you sharing the good news with others? That's what those folks that Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 were doing. They were sharing the good news with other people. It's such good news, other people need to hear about it. If this is you, is this reflected in your praise and your worship of Him? You know, I was really challenged by that word we received uh, earlier on in our meeting about the Spirit being poured out on us. You know, some of us may be have become a bit dry and crusty. You know, we're not we're not actually operating in the Spirit as He intended us to do. And I think that was a wake-up call for us all. And this worship and praise, maybe misplaced as it was for these crowds on Palm Sunday, needs to awaken in us as his people because his spirit has been poured out on us. I think that's a real wake-up call for us as his people this afternoon. If the crowds on that first Palm Sunday were excited and expectant, how much more, how much more Should we be with the more complete story that we have?